Gordon, here's how it is. You know Albert. In my opinion, Sheriff Truman displayed the patience of a saint not clocking him a day earlier than he did. He wants it filed with the U.S. attorney. File it under F or forget it. Cooper. And you tell Albert that if he wants to pursue this, Cooper. I'll fight him all the way up the Cooper. chain to Washington. Don't get excited. I'll talk to you later, Gordon. Now. Welcome to the Twin Peaks Rewatch Podcast on the Idle Thumbs Network. I'm Chris Remo. I'm Jake Rodkin. This is our episode on the fifth episode of uh, Twin Peaks. Also known as episode <laughs> four, uh, as we've discussed a million times. Also known as The One-Armed Man. Uh, it was written by Tim Hunter and directed by Robert Engels. And it first aired May 3rd of 1990. So Robert Engels is interesting because he... This was the first episode that he co-wrote, but he ended up being a really important figure in Twin Peaks. Um, he wrote a lot more episodes to this show and also co-wrote Fire Walk With Me, the oh, crazy. Uh, Twin Peaks that. prequel film. Yeah, he was um, he was brought on, I guess, because um, I think Mark Frost was the one who who knew him and brought him on because of his sense of humor Frost thought he would be suited well to the particular kind of humor that, that Twin Peaks features. Um, so, you know, Frost and, and Lynch brought him on and he ended up being a really important collaborator. Hmm. When you said that, my first response was, I don't know if this episode was particularly funny, but thinking back... I agree, it, actually, when, I, when th- I said that. But thinking back, it has a decent number of things in it. There's just... It's not a particularly, like potent episode on that front yeah yeah but it has a lot of little details in it and it's all it's you know and that also could have been one could imagine you could always direct something a different way right? right who knows um the director apparently just as another weird little tidbit the director of this episode tim hunter who i don't who i don't think necessarily is particularly important to twin peaks in a larger sense i guess was directed this episode as though like he was really influenced by Otto Preminger, the the director. Okay, uh, I I don't know for some reason this is like a big thing that's mentioned a lot. He wanted it to feel like uh, like a, a film noir or something. Um, I noticed that a ton at the very end of the episode, but I didn't notice the it the weird rest angles of the time. And stuff. Yeah, because yeah. like at the very end when uh, when Josie's getting those calls from Hank, all of a sudden the compositions like start getting really intense. And maybe it was like that earlier in the episode, but I didn't really yeah, notice. It. I, I mean, I, it gets it's ridiculous at that point, although. It is framed nicely. Like if those shots were in black and white mm-hmm. uh, and in an old movie, you would feel like they belonged there. But sure. it felt, given that there's so much other stuff in this show, in this episode, even that shot just like straight, almost like second unit mm-hmm. photography. When when it started going into that space, I was like, oh, okay, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's that. But maybe that's the whole episode, and I just didn't notice. Yeah. So, well, let me let's just recap. I guess what what yeah. main events of, of this episode. So um, we open with the police sketch. Uh, as Sarah describes Bob to Deputy Andy, uh, we're introduced to Gordon Cole. Um, the one-armed man, Mike, was found by Hawk and interrogated. Um, Audrey decides to involve herself in the investigation. She makes this deliberate uh, move to insert herself into these events. Norma's husband, Hank, is out on parole. Ben Horn puts in motion his plan to torch the mill by way of Leo. So th- those are, I think, the big plot events. There's a l- bunch more stuff that happens, obviously, yeah. but those are the big, big beats. Um, that said, it's not a very character-heavy episode. It's funny, like, 
all, all the previous episodes up until now have had these sort of esoteric weird names, and this episode is just called The One-Armed Man, <laughs> which is kind of fitting in that this episode also feels like it's just... If you, I imagine if you were watching this this show when it was first airing in 1990, this episode would potentially be a lot more exciting, at least than it is to me rewatching it, because this episode is so much just clues, additional clues, yeah. interrogating people, characters telling each other what they know, characters mm-hmm. telling each other what their plans are, and like from a like just caking on more and more mystery stuff. This episode is all about that, but it's, there's. Do you think that, do you know whether when this show aired, they did a previously on Twin Peaks segment? I'm not sure. Because this, I, I've noticed that watching this again now, I especially in contrast to modern serial television, there's a lot more restating of plot in this yep. show than, the, than you'd expect. If this show aired now on HBO or something, or I guess like the upcoming third season of Twin Peaks on Showtime... I would, I, I bet, um, I bet there will be a lot less, a lot fewer scenes of characters. Like multiple just, people saying, did you know, describing... did you know Laura did cocaine? Yeah. Yes, I did. <laughs> right, exactly. She was wild. In fact, I think she's involved in one-eyed jacks. Right. She worked at the perfume counter. Right. I will work there. Yeah. Like, I mean, we've learned these things all, what, three times at yeah. this point? Oh, it makes sense. If you imagine that this is a network television show that airs once a week that is trying to build an audience even after the series has already started. Right. Right. I mean, there's th- no notion this... of, I imagine very few people even, I mean, people probably taped it, but not for the purpose of showing their friends to catch them up on the show. Mm-hmm. There's no way to rewatch it. There's no second cable network that's immediately in real time doing catch ups yeah. and resyndication. And I saw, I noticed on the Wikipedia page for this episode, by the way, someone, a reader pointed out that every episode of Twin Peaks has its own Wikipedia page that has really interesting information about the writer and director of each episode, production notes, things like that. So check it out if you're, if you're interested in a deeper dive on the um, kind of logistical components of these episodes that, we don't, that we're not as focused on in this, in this show. Um, but I noticed that, for example, this episode saw a big viewership uptick. Uh, which makes sense because probably after the first few episodes, there was a lot of reporting about this show. You know, a lot of critical pieces came out. We know out, for so a fact that there was a major exactly, news right. feature about so, it last week. Yeah, so exactly. So um, probably a lot of people joined in to see what's going on, but of course they don't know what's going on at all. So right. you need some amount of... This episode probably, not deliberately, but thinking about it in that light and just sort of... It probably was a really good episode for people to come in on in a certain way because it's just like... If you hear that there's weird stuff that happens in the show, this episode they talk about weird stuff, but it doesn't inundate you with it. Like, it talks about how Cooper and Sarah Palmer share dreams where they've envisioned the killer. It talks about how she knew that the necklace was gone. And then you see the results of that. You see uh, Donna and Bobby go and dig up the necklace. I'm like, oh my god, Sarah Palmer said she had dreams. You know, but at the same time, what you're actually seeing this week is basically a shitload of police procedural stuff of just like yeah. a sick mystery is being mm-hmm. solved. Yep. Like it's a good episode in a lot of ways, I think, to prime you for for what's going on. I don't know. That's a good point. Like all of Alfred's forensics come in. There's just a ton. You're just right. dumped uh, right. with murder facts. Mm-hmm. And it also, one of the things that's interesting to me about this episode is that all of the uh, sort of supernatural elements of the show 
this is the point at which I think they become fully mundane to everybody, right? Yeah, they collide There's, with reality hard yeah, in this yeah. episode. There's no so we open up we open the episode with um Sarah having Andy sketch Bob from her visions, uh which he does to a hilariously accurate degree. Yeah, he's apparently a great sketch he's artist. An amazing he's sketch. Bad he's a bumbling idiot in all respects, except that he's a savant when it comes to sketching hairy men from a dream. Uh, his eyes were closer together. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so, so we see that we see that happen. Sarah also describes the the dream in which a gloved hand lifts a rock and takes out the necklace broken in half, which I thought was interesting because. I think what when was that episode two episode one that was the end of episode one that yeah was the, the, that was the, the pilot, right, of the okay, pilot. yeah I thought I had forgotten that that she mentioned that specifically because I feel at the time when you see that in the pilot episode it is somewhat ambiguous whether what you're seeing right. is she screaming because she's seeing Bob is she screaming because she's just having crazy f- memories of something she's, right like it's cutting to the and we also know that this is the thing that in fact happens right so is the version of it that we see at the end of the pilot is that the thing happening and then she is sort of seeing it in real time or is she seeing her you know a right. vision of it after the fact um it's jacoby who steals it too right because yeah. he has it at the end of two he his... has it at the end of two yeah is that right in my mind well and that? he so well i mean he says right later in this episode the night laura died i followed a man laura had spoken about driving a road corvette i followed him to the old sawmill road and lost him that was leo johnson and when he started saying that i was trying to think was that when he was following someone to go you know the i think that's the night that's, after that was a different night though right that was the following night yeah laura's killed the night before the pilot yeah so jacoby hasn't hasn't at this point said anything about how he he hasn't said anything to anybody about how he obtained that necklace no yeah um so uh one of the things that was pretty good about the um the necklace sketching scene is that we get another invitation to love bit. I'm sorry, the the Bob sketching scene. We get another invitation to love bit after it where right. J, it, it, as as invitation to love op- the soap opera opens, we see Jade slash Emerald and she's wearing a necklace and the, the camera is, has a tight right. prop around her necklace as it, as it zooms out. And she's sort of fondling this weird, bald, old guy, <laughs> yeah. perpetually nervous man yeah. named Chet. Who's who's uh, who's saying like like I'm married to your sister now? It's wrong. Is her sister meant to be like J- the other one? Yeah, Jay? I think it's got to be Emerald. <laughs> right. Okay. That that perpetually and then nervous as bald guy. Yeah. Like all of Invitation to Love feels really ahead of its time in weird like pop culture lancing because like all of that stuff feels to me aesthetically 100 percent, like it would just be a tim and eric sketch yeah. now like right. with verbatim dialogue the same intro except everyone would just sort of like show a little bit more of their teeth when they turn to the camera or something exactly right yeah. but, but i know what you're saying in that it takes these melodramatic tropes and pushes them past any yeah semblance of of but then without, without mentioning that at all yeah exactly and it, I mean, it, it's almost grotesque right i mean it, I mean, it other it than pushes it so far that it's that it's tasteless well like twin peaks itself already is often operating at the base level of real melodramatic TV. So the show that they watch inside of their world obviously has to yes, be pushed exactly one right. and a half to two times right. as intense. So that it feels melodramatic relative yeah. to reality, to yeah. their reality. Yeah. Which I'm, I don't want to jump ahead, but like the next scene basically is in the police station when 
they're like, Lucy, what's going on? And then she just, <laughs> she just barfs out. Yeah. There's this <laughs> entire recap of the entire, apparently like basically last episode or two of invitation to love, which is like, that's super good. And that's one of those, where, like, I guess the writer who's brought on for this episode props to that guy, I guess, for deciding that's going to be yeah. the opening of that conversation is having a character in the show just barf out the most disgusting convoluted soap opera plot <laughs> given that we know at the time this episode was on tv that's exactly the conversations everyone was having about twin peaks yes for sure uh so a- after that so there's a there's a little brief scene all this man don't really want to say about it we do see right there that andy is in lucy's doghouse for some reason or other that we don't yet know that comes up a few times in the episode but I don't know what to say about it. Um, the next scene is hilarious, which is uh, <laughs> Cooper sitting at a table in a, I don't know, interrogation room or a conference room or something in the police station talking to Jacoby. Jacoby is standing there silently doing this weird golf ball trick where he's sticking golf balls in and out of his mouth. Right? Yeah. He's just and, – and Cooper is absolutely stone-faced, has no reaction to any of this. Cooper is just – is that like the the centered shot of Jacoby framed with the huge map of Tibet yeah. in the background behind him? Yeah, yes. Sorry. Yeah. Like, Jacoby finishes. Cooper doesn't miss a beat. It just says, with Laura Palmer seeing you because she was addicted to cocaine or something yep. like that. Yeah. Uh, God, amazing. And apparently, the actor who played Jacoby, um, was that Russ Tamblin? Or yes. I, can, I, th- yeah. I think that's I think that's He him. apparently just kind of was an amateur magician or something. Yeah, someone just, on the forums wrote in about that. Like all of the a lot of his the weird things that he does, he just wanted to do them on the show because he knew how to do them. Yeah. That's the best. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh this show, I love the mo- the pr- presumably this happens in in all in television and, and film all the time. And we know we know it does if you read anything about, you know, just what goes on beyond behind the scenes. But it's particularly hilarious often in this show because the world of Twin Peaks is so receptive to just idiosyncratic just, behavior yes, like that. Yeah, ex- exactly. It really like brings it in for a big hug or yeah, by way, by way of just centering a character in the middle of a shot and having them just do a weird thing with a golf ball. in their Right. Mouth. And then have absolutely no acknowledgement of it right. at all. I mean, that to me is hysterical that Cooper d- may as well not even have seen him do that. Man, the other to jump way ahead the other moment like that in this episode which which feels like reactions turned into a deliberate choice is when they're in the veterinarian at the very end and that llama walks between yes. cooper and truman and cooper just kind of like <laughs> cooper totally stares it, it down locks locks yeah. into its eyes and then it walks by and then they just the scene just continues yeah he doesn't miss a beat yeah whereas mm-hmm. truman seems incredibly baffled by the mm-hmm. fact that a llama has come way too close to him in the, in the, in the shot yeah for sure anyway sorry. that that is really impressive and i have to say i've never been the most oh, hugely impressed with kyle mclaughlin as an actor i mean i think he's fine um i don't you know i mean he he's cast in appropriate roles i suppose right i mean yeah. lynch puts him in stuff that that suits well to him but i don't know if i necessarily imagine he would have a huge amount of breath but but that all that said, I don't mean to, to, to poo poo him. Like he's really, really, really effective on this show. And I think part of the reason why is because he seems to be able to completely internalize this particular aspect of Cooper, which is a combination of almost deliberate or forced naivete and complete, um, um, stoicism the moment when he uh, – this is a weird 
example of this, but in early in the show, when they're in the, uh, when Cooper and Truman are in the morgue, I guess, and the, uh, assistant gives his name when, when, when Cooper says, could you leave us please? And the guy says, Jim, and he leaves and Kyle McLaughlin just doesn't break for a second. He just, he just immediately says, uh, could you leave us alone, please? And the guy says, oh, sorry. And he leaves. That guy's totally flustered. Right. Kyle McLaughlin, that's completely out, off script. That's not, not right. at all what was written. Um, but he just doesn't break it at all. He right. doesn't crack a smile. He doesn't do anything. And I feel like that actor just n- so nails that part of Cooper so hard that it's all well, he ends impossible. up making that be a part of Cooper. Yeah, exactly. It's almost impossible to tell when. Because we know that some of those are totally off script and it's, it makes it – even knowing that makes it even harder to tell what moments are planned and right. to what degree they're planned and what moments that was written into the character. That stuff probably also gets increasingly layered in over the show because sure. they're just like, oh, man. Yeah. There's gold happening. Yeah, absolutely. It's hilarious every time. Yeah. Um, so that – so yes. Um, I guess to that point, the next thing after Jacoby is Cooper getting a call from Gordon, his boss – his appearance on the for uh for the first time yes, on the show. Absolutely. A I guess it's not a spoiler to talk about the fact that Gordon Gordon's character reappears multiple times and is always good and is voiced yes. by uh David Lynch. Yes. Apparently because David Lynch um thought it would be a funny idea for Gordon <laughs> for a character to just speak really loud all the time. He just thought that would be funny. And so he then just had to come up with a reason for why that's the case and said, oh, I guess he's, he's, he's hard of hearing. Hard of hearing. But what he really just wanted to do is have a character who constantly just was yelling. Screaming. Yes. Also, anyone who hears David Lynch talk or play any character knows that David Lynch being loud is funny. Like, he's, right. he's good <laughs> yes. at it. He has this very strange voice that is kind of monotone, except it's monotone several notches higher than most people's monotone, right? When you hear most people, when you think male voice monotone, you think, well, and I talk like this, and this is the only range I stay within. Right. But David Lynch weirdly has this push. The most intense monotone. monotone. Yeah, he's always he has on the phone, and he needs you to do this thing for for him. It's really surprising. So good, and he's he's really not far from that. If you just watch him speak in life, I mean, he's less um, anim- he's less sort of screamy, but he, he has that same. Very tight range of pitch. Yeah. But, oh, man. It just, it's, it sounds like he's just, you can't tell at all if Gordon is actually agitated or if he's just trying to talk someone down or if he right. is dispassionate. Exactly. Yeah. Or he's just like, Ah, it's he just ex- he he exists in so many places at once because of that. When he's talking about Alfred filing this report, and Cooper's just like, you know how he is, and then but like, is he being insistent? Is he just can he not even tell if Cooper can hear him? Like it's I don't know. I really like I like mm-hmm. that character a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my favorite thing about that phone call is when he informs Cooper that the marks on Laura's shoulder are bird bites. Yes, good lord. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really good weird detail. Yeah. Uh, which which leads to this you know this huge search later. I don't know. I don't know if we need to talk about it that much. It's kind of just no. Well, gags, the, the thing suppose. that the thing that's nice about the way all of that stuff, like I think, just as far as mystery unveiling and sort of 
chain of events related stuff. This episode is really well constructed. It's just not, it doesn't have all the things that I like when I think about a great Twin Peaks episode, but as far as just a TV mystery episode, I feel like it is pretty good. Mm -hmm. Just like they meet Bob. I mean, well, excuse me. They meet Mike. Yeah. And he has that completely baffling interview where he has these like bizarro half accurate to their expectations versions of all these answers. Like he knows. Let's like, talk about that now. Yeah. That okay. Was weird. Yeah. Well, I will just, just to, to jump over that, just the, that interview then sends them to someone who is a veterinarian. Bob Lidecker. Yeah. Whose name is Bob, who then ends up having a record for a minor bird who is in the possession of Jacques Renault, who's a character who's come up before like that sort of mm -hmm. way that everything folds in on itself. It ends up kind of making sense, but still doesn't quite mm -hmm. that like the sort of plotting of that feels really, really good to me. And like mm -hmm. the, the reveals are, are yeah. really strong. I but agree. And I, and I think the, to me, I mean, I think this scene probably, I don't know if it has the most to talk about for the purpose of our show, but if you're a twin peaks, kind of lore fanatic or something i think this scene would probably have the most to the talk Mike about from this episode yeah yeah because i think it's one of the this scene is probably one of the early i don't know rosetta stone bits of trying to put together how the sort of dream reality of twin peaks intersects with and maps to the physical reality yep right because we we sort of we get the sense uh i guess this episode is like that in a few ways because we also learn that uh, Sarah's dream about the, we learned that Sarah's vision of the hand getting the necklace with that is clearly directly yep. one-to-one -one with something that happened in reality. Um, we see that Bob from her dream and from Cooper's, uh, vision are, is, is precisely what, what we know the character to look like right. as viewers of the show. Um, and then, but in, but in, uh, well, the case of Mike's past it's literally the weird stuff being the most mu being mundane and but in like in the most literal goofy way possible his tattoo in his interview says mom yeah and you know what's funny when i this this he's so was, moved by that too he's so moved by it and the first time i saw this scene when they said what is your what does your tattoo say i thought he said bob Oh no! He's and like, I was like, "What? What? <laughs> I, that was the most mind blowing thing." That I was, oh, no, it's no, way no, better no, no, than no. it says, "Mom." Yeah, it's "Mom." He's like, "Mom." Yeah, which is great. And they don't, he had and, to cut off the tattoo that had said his mom's name on it. By which I mean, it said "Mom" on it. Yeah. Uh, which what a crazy revelation! Just for the show to to just cut on. Yep. Right? Doesn't he say this is this devastating moment and then it just cuts? Yep. Um, which I feel like at this point is just part of the language well, of the show. Well, because it's also the most deflating fact to reveal in the investigation, right? Right. Sure. In the dream, his tattoo was not – did not say mom, right? Do we know? Because his arm was still cut off. Oh, I thought that he said what – never mind. I thought – Oof, I can't remember. I have no memory at all of what – it said or didn't say. Yeah. I thought I thought the phrase "fire walk with me" was involved with that, but I guess it wasn't. I guess that's something else. Yeah, I totally don't remember. I should have paid more attention. Anyway, well, Mike reads the. Yeah, I mean, he reads the fire. He, he recites. Oh, he fire just walk recites the whole poem. thing. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But he doesn't. Yeah. Um. But it, like, his name is not really Mike, but his middle name is Mike. He knows a guy named Bob, who's a vet who conveniently but doesn't look like who doesn't look like that bob guy also they apparently did uh nothing related to what dream mike said mm -hmm. that they, they did. didn't live together right right but there's potentially a connection in that the veterinarian is located above slash adjacent to a convenience store right 
Yep. Uh, I don't know. Do you have anything else to say about that that scene? No. Yeah. Nope. Um, so after that, we well, actually, I suppose technically before that, but at the same around time, there, essentially, yeah, we we see Catherine and uh, Ben Horn in that same motel. Uh, one, they're being surveyed, uh, surveilled by Josie Packard, who's in right. a car outside before um, the whole all of the invest- the uh, law enforcement arrives. Um, they're conniving about their plans more of just, I guess more of the same they've been doing. For they're getting a lot episodes. more explicit about it now though, it's where Ka- Catherine has been hiding the, she's the mill is losing a ton of money. Right. And she's got a book that looks like it's doing well. I couldn't remember which direction that was going. If the mill was doing fine and she was trying to make it look like it was a loss, but no, it's doing no, badly. She's trying to make it look badly. like a success. Right. Exactly. So that they're, they're trying to frame Josie for burning it down for insurance money. Exactly. Yes. But really, um, they just want to put ghost with estates there, right? Mm-hmm. Or something. Or something. Yeah. I, that's what I imagined it was. But. Yeah. Um, so Catherine also, on the floor of the motel room, finds a a chip from One-Eyed Jacks, which we later in the episode learn is probably where the fragment of plastic in... Uh, yeah, they're almost entirely sure that that's the case. Yes, in, um, in Laura's stomach. Because Albert says it's from a poker chip. Yeah. Uh, which is interesting because um, uh, I had, for- I guess, I had forgotten about this this bit from my right, the previous time I watched the show, and of course, I had sort of conflated that with the the little letter fragments under right. the victim's fingernails. Right. But nope. Totally unrelated. Yeah. Seemingly. So uh, that all happens. Um, we we then go to another Donna and Audrey scene, which I love. All of these scenes, um, man, in the most well-painted high school bathroom. <laughs> what do you mean? Just, it's awesome. It's classic. It's like, it's that, I don't know. I was, I don't know why I liked the paint job of that bathroom. It looks like the way that some dad in the seventies would paint like the basement rec room or something. Cause it's like, <laughs> it's got like those, the red, like racing stripe that then turns into the, uh, into the like zigzaggy angles. I don't know. It looks like the basement from Homestar Runner to me. <laughs> totally classic. It's really nice. It's, Man, I don't remember. Sorry, I don't know. No, that's a good observation. Check out that bathroom. If you're ever, oh, if you're ever looking to redo a high school bathroom, go check out <laughs> Twin Peaks episode five, middle of the episode. Um, good. So yeah, so Don is in there. Don is in the bathroom. Audrey comes in. Um, they have this whole sort of conspiratorial conversation, talking about the investigation, sharing information about what's been learned about Laura's murder. Um. Audrey is a hilarious character. Audrey is such a weird 1950s throwback from the way she dresses to sort of the way she talks in this really uh, kind of, I I, I want to say like post-war B-movie snappy dialogue kind of way. Mm-hmm. You know, she's, Laura had a sweet tooth for nose candy. Laura was wild. You know, I mean, just yep. really, she everything she does and says is just stylish in this really pushed away like she's wearing this like a very short tight sweater and a and a pencil skirt in that like yep. she I, I don't know every it's all very i don't know it's i don't know what it's because the whole student body in this series is kind of a weird 50s throwback yep right but she's the she's the uh kind of aloof um outsider one that feels seems like she's going to grow up into being who Rosalind Russell from his girl Friday or something. I don't right. Know. She's the one who 
even though her her personality is completely different, her aesthetic and way of talking ends up becoming the like mid nineties affected counterculture, vaguely descended from or towards rockabilly right. people, yeah, there you like go. Yeah, yeah. who really like living in Eichler houses and stuff like that. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, Audrey tells Donna Laura was seeing Jacoby, which I hadn't even I'd forgotten. I knew obviously that's right. the case. I'd forgotten that wasn't just common. This knowledge scene is to all everyone. recap for us, but it's interesting to just watch different people's knowledge collide yeah. with each other. Right. I mean, we've, we've seen evidence of Laura, Laura's um, relationship to Jacoby so many times at this point, but of course most people on the show don't know. Yeah. Like Audrey confirms happened. from Donna that Laura was using cocaine mm-hmm. and Audrey confirms to Donna that she was seeing Jacoby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and also Audrey plants the idea of one eyed Jacks to Donna, which, well, yeah. And Audrey also, uh, this confirms that she's put together the perfume counter connection. Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, next up, Norma attends Hank's parole, a parole board hearing. She promises to give him a job and a home. Obviously, she's very her responses, conflicted about Her this. responses to all the parole board questions are really good, though. I yeah, think. they really are. Like, I don't, I, I can't even actually remember. Oh, or just like, I don't even remember what they are. I just remember. Well, the, the one that I remember most because of how sort of heartbreaking it is, is when, so she's, well, they ask if, if, if. How she knows she'll be able to find a job. She says she I own the double owns R. a double R diner, blah, blah, blah. Um, oh, then will you live together as man we, and wife? Yes. And she says, well, he's my husband, isn't he? Yeah. Which is a really – it's really sad, right? Because she – Well, we learn later in the episode that it, she had been planning on going to this hearing in part to see Hank and say, I'm splitting it off. I'm, we're right. calling it off. We're, d- yeah, we're done. Right. But instead, her well, last – she still doesn't – when she answers it in a way that doesn't make her enthusiastically say, yes, he's going to live with me. But, no, it's just like, but she, I, I guess it's what's happening. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, she answers it in a way that depending on how you say that, it could be like, you could answer this. I mean, well, we're husband and wife, aren't we? I mean, like, obviously, what do you think? obviously. Yeah. But, but I mean, as it's, opposed she's to, really it resigned. is basically it's the really, requirement that we do. Yeah. It's, it's a bummer. <laughs> yeah. Um, Man, Hank. I, <laughs> what, another classic Twin Peaks male sleeve? God, I wrote down about? Hank, another sad-eyed, mulleted, tough guy. Yeah. Uh-huh, like, just yep, uh-huh. so many. He's got that cheesy domino that he licks. Like, oh, gross. Just. Yep. yep. Yeah. As, as you've previously pointed out, the men of Twin Peaks. What a <laughs> what a, what a bunch of what winners. What a bunch of lamos. <laughs> but there's so many people who are, like, supposed to look really tough. On this show, who either look like they've been hit in the head too many times, or just look like they're the big, like the saddest softies who are being cast as these super threatening guys. And in a way, it makes them scarier sometimes, but yeah, it often you get just does sense, not. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> it's kind of both. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're not threatening because of anything intrinsic to themselves. They're threatening because they basically have nothing. You know, I mean, I think the characters you're describing. Like Leo and Hank, and I don't know who, who else you mean specifically, but the- well, even I mean Sheriff Truman's not a bad guy, but he like he just looks like the saddest sort of it's soft true, guy. Right? Yeah. But then he also is a character who's supposed to step up and shoot people and you know right. do all sorts of yeah. You know, and a lot of these characters, the thing that makes them threatening, especially the ones who are who are overtly criminal, is that they don't really have anything going on. None of them really seem to care that much if. They're implicated in these like heinous acts. Right. You know, I mean, in this episode, we see uh, Ben Horn meet with Leo Johnson in the woods. 
you know, Leo's got his bright red Corvette out there and Ben Horn's like, nice, nice taking the, this bright red car to a clandestine right. meeting. Take the idiot. most notable car in the whole town. Yeah. And Leo just doesn't give a shit about it. I mean, no one can say, no <laughs> one ever two vehicles says, are the most notable vehicles yeah, in the know, world. Right. I know. No one ever says anything to Leo that Leo gives a shit about. It's not a thing that happens. Right. And, uh, and they're re- talking about this, you know, drug money or whatever. And, and Leo's saying, look, this isn't a lot of money to you, I guess. It's a lot of money to me. Leo has basically nothing. I mean, he's a shit. I'm not, I don't mean to be sympathetic to him. He's garbage. But like the reason these Hank, Leo, the reason these characters are dangerous is because they're, they will risk their entire livelihood for some menial reward. It's also because their entire livelihood is basically non-existent because they live out in the middle of nowhere with nothing to do. Exactly. Yeah. Um, So they're at sort of, they're essentially just these, sort of knowing pawns. I mean, they know that they're <laughs> just, you know, at the the whim of these like more powerful individuals or forces, but they don't really give a shit, at least not to the point that they aren't just going to continue to implicate themselves in this stuff. Right. Um, I don't know. Yeah. They're, they're weird. Yeah. Sad From one characters. step outside, it makes them weird, chaotic elements. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's see. I oh I guess I think um, the next thing is the scene in the pet store, and I think we kind of talked about that the police stopping at the gas mm-hmm. station and the yeah, going yeah. and yeah. Uh, getting the records from Bob Lidecker's mm-hmm. stuff. And then after that is when Bobby gets the gets Leo's bloody shirt from Shelley. Right. This is another one of those where. The thing that was interesting to me about God, this conversation, of which hmm? Bobby, you get the sense is like growing up to just be one of these. Yeah. Another oh, one yeah. Of these well, that was in, in the same style, uh, uh, in the same vein as Audrey and Donna talking in the bathroom and me going, oh, man, these characters don't all know the same things. Bobby was. And again, I guess um, Laura's cocaine comes up a ton in this episode because mm-hmm. of the like it sort of is this weird it's a it's a through line through all these different people's things, including the cocaine smuggling and mm-hmm. why she's seeing Jacoby and the, the characters passing information back and forth. But I, Bobby plays totally innocent when talking to Shelley about the cocaine and about the drug dealing and stuff. She has no idea that he's implicated in the same shit that yeah. Leo is. Mm-hmm. And I totally had forgotten about that. Yeah. I had forgotten that to Shelley, Bobby's someone who I guess they probably were in high school together in different enough grades that they didn't know each other very well. But now they are involved but like bobby's just like yeah there's this crazy stuff with this drug dealing and ja- oh jacques renault weird i think leo's hooked up with that guy like dude you are hooked up with leo 100 percent, and are the person who gave laura cocaine right yeah but he's like he just flat out lies to shelly about that stuff and then they conspire together or they don't even conspire together he just takes the shirt and is like this is shirt. perfect this is the answer yeah. to our prayers and she's like ah, okay yeah mm-hmm. although she she is bought into it by the time she's talking to norma later yeah, in the she's, diner yeah she's she's all sort of excited about it um also in this scene there's just the hilarious little tidbit that leo or i'm sorry not leo james he's saying james hurley was seeing laura behind my back I'll fix him saying this as he is literally making out with the girl that he was seeing behind Laura's back. Like what, <laughs> what an amazing, what, did, what an amazing moment of obliviousness. Oh, sorry. I'm going to fly way into the background here. Cause I, I was, I was thinking was invitation to love on here. It wasn't, I was thinking about when, when, uh, 
Shelley was watching it way earlier, mm-hmm. but Catherine and Ben are watching it in that hotel. Oh, that's true. I really like, I don't have any, there's no observation behind it other than just Invitation to Love cementing itself as the weird meta thing. I love that the everyone in Twin Peaks watches this show, that it's just on in the background oh, yeah, totally. everywhere. Uh-huh. Like everyone. Definitely. Even though these people are embroiled in the most insane, yep. just like Baroque mystery in the mm-hmm. world they also all pass their time by involving themselves in this fictional insane mm-hmm. one that just passively is being watched all over town anyway sorry so there's a, there's a really quick I, there's after this there's all this stuff where they're reviewing the bird owners and stuff I don't, there's not really anything to say about that i think but there's one moment i want to point out which is cooper talking to lucy or i'm sorry talking to andy about lucy and her whatever kind of snit she's in mm-hmm. and Cooper says, in the grand design, women were drawn from a different set of blueprints. And then all of the assembled men were like, like amen, oh, yeah. oh, 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 yeah, for that. <laughs> Which, in the context of our previous conversation about these sort of sad, shitty men, well, I guess I have two things to say about, about Cooper's uh, observation. One is that I'm pretty sure the women of Twin Peaks are, like, on balance about a thousand times more well-adjusted and... <laughs> normal than the men of twin peaks yeah so that's that's one thing the women of twin peaks basically their job is to weather the stupid insanity of Mm -hmm. all the men in the town like Mm -hmm. they have to just sort of stand still and wait for that stuff to just break over them and go somewhere else and then go on with their lives basically right exactly um and then also i feel like so this really reminds me of the moment in the tibetan rock throwing scene when Lucy says, anyone want to warm up? And immediately all those basically exact same guys are like, oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. oh, wow, great. Thanks, Lucy. It's This is the sort of crew of just like do of this just like dopes. man dudes, yeah. dopey man dudes who are the, of Twin Peaks, right? In contrast to the kind of s- sad uh, criminal shits right. of Twin Peaks. We have sort of the like man men who are kind of – who, when someone says women were drawn for a different set of blueprints, everyone's like, oh, right. But well, we know that to be true. Every conversation between women in this episode is just, what are we going to do about what the hell is going on? Yeah. Like, always. That's true. It's That's just, a good what point. are we going to do about yeah, our you lives? Have, you have Norma and Shelly talking to each other right. about their and horrible... Audrey and Donna. Audrey and Donna talking to each other, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, so I just, I, I like this yeah. as a microcosm of a bunch of other stuff. Um, and then also... Uh, I guess right after that, I suppose, Cooper is reflecting on love and a broken heart because I think Truman asks him if he was ever married. That's when they're on the shooting range. When they're on the, shoot, when they're on the shooting range, right. And Cooper is uh, clearly has this, uh, you know, lost love. And and then we well, there's a really interesting thing. We, we hear Laura's theme, but it's played on like an oboe or something, mm-hmm. some woodwind instrument. And it, it sounds way less cheesy than it normally does which I thought was interesting because it's coming on top of some really trite right. <laughs> really trite stuff including this thing from hawk that i guess is just what <laughs> hawk's character is he says one woman can help you fly like an eagle another can give you the strength of a lion but only one in the cycle of life can fill your heart with wonder and wisdom that you have known a singular joy i wrote that for my girlfriend Diane Shapiro, PhD, Brandeis, which is, is just the Hawk, I guess, right? Because this yeah. happens last episode, too. It's a he, way better version of, of previous Hawk, though. Yeah, where he delivers this whole kind of sort of hokey, 
obviously intended to evoke Native American tribal wisdom and then undercuts it with a, a, a moment of just, or he's just really down to earth. Laura's on the ground or whatever. Well, yeah. Well, in that one, though, that felt like that was actually – it was intended for him to actually be quoting some Native American spiritual thing. Whereas in this, it's just – like that was sort of like – we were talking about I feel like last time it was – it felt way more like it was letting Hawk as a character have his cake and eat it. Mm-hmm. Whereas this felt like it was just – no, no, no. F that. This is – we're just – uh Sure. It's, a compl- Although, it's a complete undercut even of the previous episode's use of Hawk, I felt like. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll buy that. Although I do think the fact that he references these like animal spirits, talks about the cycle of life, I feel like yeah. it's still no, that's, that's fair. trying to evoke this certain thing. But I, I'd like that they at least... Did, they owned it a little more they, this time, they, I feel yeah, like. Yeah. But I don't know. Also, Cooper's shooting range results... I put four through the eyes and one through each, each nostril. <laughs> I know. It just draws that? that weird face. <laughs> um, so we talked about Shelly and, and, and Norma already. Um, oh, I, I did like... Oh, go ahead. I just... Lucy busting in on the, on the megaphone. Always enjoyable whenever Lucy has to go through some weird bureaucra- bureaucratic anything. I just liked that in this, in this case, the weird detail is that the veterinarian... Organize everything by the name of the pets. That's all. Yeah. All like, right. That, that, was, that, that was pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, Chris, for talking about Twin Peaks. Oh, how dare you? Um, we got James on the phone with Donna, which I thought was a really boring phone conversation. James is in the... That was the worst version of the plot recap stuff. Yeah, really... Oh, the, um, the one reveal in that, the one sort of interesting nugget that I thought was dropped was Donna pointing out that Laura and her mom were both known for having those weird... Uh, like premonitions. Oh, that's true. You're right. You're right. You're right. But right. other than that, it's just someone do, did the thing. And then the, later in the episode, they go out there and they're like, it's, well, that, that, um, oh no, sorry. Um, I'm, I'm, no, yeah, that was different. I'm thinking about something else. Yes. Cause that, yeah. it's when, it's when the two of them are out in the woods yes. together in the seat. Like, so we talked already about Leo and Ben in the woods. That happens very late in the episode, but the sort of meanwhile in the same woods is when Donna and James dig up the necklace or dig it's up where not, they think the necklace there, is. Yeah. And that's when Donna points out that Laura and her yes, mom you're right, you're both right. have those visions yeah. and they totally think that they're being watched by someone. And you're mm-hmm. led to think maybe it's whoever dug up the thing. Maybe it's Leo and Ben. And then it just, it just turns out to be an owl. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a I love that shot of the owl. I know it's really it's a weird. There's a weird snap zoom. Yeah, on the just, owl. It's a really <laughs> funny shot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the but when yeah when James is in the diner, it is a boring fun conversation. And then he meets Maddie, also kind of just boring. Um, he, he, James does his classic glassy eyed gaze at at Maddie. Just his, his, his jam. Yep, what that is. Uh, she talks about how they used to w- visit Twin Peaks when she was a kid. She and Laura would pretend they were sisters. Yep. Um, I don't know. Whatever. Uh, after that, uh, there's Ben Horn on the exercise bike as... Man, exercise bike and like a classic cordless phone. Yes, true. When Audrey comes in and, and the my favorite thing about... Okay, my two favorite things about that scene are one is how long Ben Horn stays on the exercise bike while Audrey is yep. like, supposedly pouring out his heart to him or her heart to him. My other favorite thing is as, as she arrives, he's on the phone on this big chunky cordless. And he, I think the first thing he says in the scene is, scene is no, I don't know what you get when you cross a Norwegian and a Swede. 
Ah, very good, sir. Yeah. And we never learn what the punchline to that joke is. We just know that he's he's had enough of this. I've had enough of it. Um, so he goes through, they go through this whole thing. Audrey claims to have changed her ways. Like, wants to Laura's be Laura's death again. is making her take a, turn a corner. Mm-hmm. Wants to grow up. Wants to get a job in the family business. Yeah. So this is this is just a bunch of yeah. She just totally talking. plays her dad to get a job at yeah, the perfume counter. Yeah, she definitely counter. does. The the interesting thing I think about this scene is after she says, you know, please let me be, be your daughter again, they hug. And then the camera pans over to, I guess, Ben Horn's desk on which is a photograph of Audrey and Laura together, mm-hmm. like clearly really friendly with each other in front of a ski cabin or something. They're wearing like wool knit little beanies. Right. And they, that is something that we, I don't think, I don't think we we have known that they had any kind of like close friendship or it's never implied. Relationship. It's, it's never yeah. implied. It's even stated the opposite. Yeah, exactly. Of that. The opposite is implied. For it's sure. funny. It made me think that because Leland Palmer is Ben Horn's attorney, that it was actually just two families going on a trip together, and that's where that oh, picture that, came that, from. Which would explain why it was in his office. I suppose. Yeah, yeah. That, that, but that, that could be the case. That is totally just. I just made. That but they. Up. Look, but they. But they look genuine. Like they were yeah, smiling. They, they don't they, look like they're. Two girls being forced to, to be around each other. That's true. Um, but they're also knows? the yeah. two young girl or like young women in that show that are most likely to play the role that's prescribed to them when someone's taking a picture of them. But that's, that's probably they, diving that's way they too are, far they off are, the cliff. No, I mean, you're, but you're right in that they are different. They have different modes of glamour, but they are probably right. the two most glamorous but high school aged women in the show. It could also be. That they were better friends than than Audrey's letting on. It could also yeah. be that on that trip they, they a, really connected. You know, right? They had a falling out later. Who knows? Yeah. Right. Um, anyway, or it could just be there's a picture of the two of them to make you to get Laura's face back into the show again. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we've already discussed most of the stuff that happens after this in terms of uh, the search through the files, um, finding out that the bird was owned by or presumed there was. A bird owned by Jacques Renault, yep. a minor bird that could be the bird that bit Laura Palmer. Um, named Waldo. Named Waldo. <laughs> we we learn about the poker chip from One-Eyed Jacks that has the J that could be in, in Laura's stomach. Yep. Uh, Cooper says, uh, uh, surrounding all this stuff, Cooper says, when two su- separate events occur simultaneously relating to the same object of inquiry, we must play, pay strict attention. Which is basically, that is Twin Peaks, right? I mean, yeah. that's, that's this episode... It's full of that stuff. That's essentially his entire method of deduction. Right. Um, so they go to Jock's place. This is a really heavy plot element. So they get to Jock, Jock's place. Bobby is already there planting Leo's bloody right. shirt. Bobby jumps out the window. They, the window, they yeah. think that it's Jock and right. chase him, mm-hmm. lose him in the woods, yeah. find the bloody shirt, and mm-hmm. are like, this is the connection we've been looking for. Leo Johnson's bloody shirt is in Jacques Renault's house. Mm-hmm. Which... Is totally a valid connection, but it was, it, or like Leo and Jacques are connected, we know, because mm-hmm. of the drug dealing, but obviously yeah. the context by which of they're course. making this connection is in, is totally yes. incorrect. Definitely. Um, we, we, we then go to Ben Horn meeting Leo in the woods. We've already talked about this. One thing we, we didn't mention, this very small little thing I wanted to bring up, is that uh, after they, they talk this over and Leo describes the conditions that he wants Leo to create surrounding the the mill arson. He then says, "Green light, Leo." I know so that was a really good. Bur- burn the mill three nights. Green light. Mm-hmm. I know what. Yep, really good. Um, 
So Don and James go to dig up the necklace. It's not there. We talked about this. This is when, as you said before, uh, Donna tells James that Laura used to say her mother saw things, had these dreams. Laura did too. Yep. Owl hoots. Then we're getting into the end of the episode. Josie mm-hmm. gets the call from Truman. Wait, hold on. It, oh, man. What? There's more? Well, before that. There's more? Before that, that scene opens with a really lingering shot of just the most outrageous taxidermied goat. Oh, yeah. Of that course. Is like, <laughs> with, with his little hooves a foot lower holding a shotgun. Yes. Hopefully the one that was used to kill this goat. Right. Yeah, there's... That's a goat, right? I think so. I don't remember. There's a really long face. This whole, the whole end, um, I mean, I guess just that's all in Pete and Catherine's house, right? Because Josie is... Mm-hmm. That house is just a festival of taxidermied stuff because yeah. all of the end yeah, shots I, with yes. Josie, there's right. that bear uh, in the background in like in shallow focus behind her. Mm-hmm. Um, but So, so b- before she gets the phone call, she opens her mail and in, a, in an envelope is... I thought that was after that. Whatever. No, it was before. Uh, she gets a detailed pencil sketch of a domino, clearly identical, a, th- a three, val- you know, domino. Oh, yeah. It was a very meticulously rendered. Yes, very so carefully Presumably drawn. Hank spent like a good half hour drawing this nice domino to send Yeah, in. maybe spent years in prison brushing up on his churrasquero skills yeah. or whatever that is. <laughs> like pencil cross-hatching. Oh, the call that she got before that I was going to mention was just, it was Truman saying, I can't come over. I've got stuff going on. And then he just says, were you at that hotel? And she just oh, and says, she goes, goodbye. Oh, goodbye. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. come on. Yep. Anyway, whatever. So she opens this letter, sees the domino, gets a call from Hank, who's then, like, I kind of felt like that's her, almost... Her opening the envelope actually sent a message. Right. Hank had psychically coded the envelope so that he knew that when it was open, it was time to call her and say, did you get that domino? Call. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's the end of the episode. In that was classic a- Twin Peaks style, just introducing an entirely new... It's not a follow up on a long thread it's just like suddenly there's this new connection introduced into the episode yep. i don't mind that though i don't I mean, mind it either it's i mean it's a show, very different way this than, show juggles tons of these threads all the time so most shows don't do cliffhangers like that at least not mm-hmm. at this point in time of just sort of mm-hmm. i mean that's another thing that is i think a big difference between shows of that era and and modern television is that cliffhangers are just less important now yep you know i feel like a a, a serial television show you still it's definitely still a convention of television for sure to end on something dramatic or end on something unresolved because you want someone to come back. But there is an expectation that people are a little more bought in than yeah. when you were vying on network television but when, know, for people's attention week by week. When people structure cliffhangers now, it's way more often that the, the, the cliffhanger is the stakes are changed. Everything you knew is different. Like a character opens up a warehouse and... And it's true. empty, or yeah, or they open That's up a warehouse true. and there's a guy inside who's a mm-hmm. famous actor who says, "Well, you found me," or something. Right, you know, right. and you're like, "Oh, what does he know? How does he fit in?" Whereas this, it's always just. And now one more new thing, and we're out. And I suspect that that was actually very successful at making people just say, "What the heck?" Yeah, because it, like, you have the trajectory of he's getting out of prison, and we don't really know what that means other than it's going to make Norma's life suck. Mm-hmm. But then he's just like. Oh, also, I'm involved with Josie. And then you're just like, you have nothing yep. to go on. You have that no enti- context. Yes. This wasn't like an episode leading up to... Th- this wasn't an episode building and building and building and building up to this cliffhanger. It was the entire existence of the information to make this cliffhanger possible was both introduced and left unresolved in the same 10-second scene. Right. Like, we had no idea they were connected at all. Suddenly, we learned this. And as soon as we learned it, the episode's over. Yeah. it's 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 a very strange way of doing it that is totally not what I'm used to for the way modern TV shows do it. Mm-hmm. 
at least not modern TV shows that all basically prescribe to like the JJ Abrams style of, uh, of cliffhangers. Yeah. So that's, that's the episode. You want to do some, some reader mail? Yeah. About it. Yep. 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 We've got, we've been getting a lot of really, really good, uh, reader mail. So, um, I, uh, I apologize if we don't, if we don't get to yours, keep sending it to twin peaks at idlethumbs.net and we'll read what we can. Um, it's, we've just been getting a lot. It's really good though. So keep it coming. Um, Milos Barros writes, Hey, Idle Thumbs, you mentioned in your most recent episode that you were curious about the unofficial German titles for the individual Twin Peaks episodes. Well, I don't know who was responsible for titling the episodes. Mark Frost and David Lynch definitely weren't involved in naming them, and I don't know to what extent they personally recognized the titles. CBS has played pretty fast and loose with the titles, however, so my guess would be they're merely tolerated. Episode 27-28, Miss Twin Peaks, for example was not explicitly titled in the German broadcast as the last two episodes were broadcast together. So CBS just adopted a popular fan title that now appears on their website and is printed on the Blu-ray sets. As your German fans have no doubt already written about in droves, a number of the German titles are actually plays on words which wind up uh, obfuscated in translation. The German version of Jake's favorite title, Rest in Pain, for instance, is Ruhe in Unfrieden. I'm I'm sorry, German people. For instance, this, you're, you're, uh, that's a callback to the Norwegian translator. <laughs> it's a play on Ru in Frieden, rest in peace, which makes that rest yeah. in unpeace, essentially. Our friend, uh, um, Marius? Marius, yeah, uh, Marius wrote in on Twitter, I guess, to, to point this out as well. Um, similarly, similarly, episodes 7 slash 8 that ends the first season, the last evening, is titled Der Letz Abend in the German broadcast, which is presumably a play on Das Let's Abendmahl, The Last Supper. There are probably more, but I'd need more than a semester of German in a translator's dictionary to identify them. Thanks for the podcast and keep up the great work. Uh, Miles Barros. Yeah, the episode naming structure of Twin Peaks is just a disaster. So it's not a surprise that they just sort of went, okay, I guess this is what they're called. Yeah. It's funny that they've adopted fan names, though. That's a thing, like... The place when I'm most used to seeing that happen, and this is a really dumb place to see that happen, is the soundtracks to video games. <laughs> oh, just because, like, when a film score comes out, there's almost always a soundtrack, but most video games, even though they have the same amount of music written for them very often that a film soundtrack would, fans end up just ripping the music out for themselves and putting it on mm-hmm. YouTube, but then when those things get released officially as soundtracks... They never bother to call the composer and they just rip the names off of like a fan page oh, or a really? YouTube thing. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Like, I That's don't know. That's funny. Uh, yeah. The official soundtrack to Monkey Island Special Edition released by LucasArts <laughs> is just the names that some guy on a forum wow, wrote, I no wrote for them. That's probably less common in modern soundtracks, which I think, you know, I think yeah. modern game soundtracks are more likely to have that's that stuff. All the same as what we were talking watch. about now. Every. Oh, that's true. Every it's, TV yeah. show has an episode yeah. name now. No, that's true. Uh, that's true. But. Um, so here is a here is an email sent by Seth Benson, but it's mainly just a transcript of a couple posts on our web forum um, that were written by uh, Sick Notes, aka Seth Benson, and CL Wheeljack, another forum member. Um, CL Wheeljack wrote something occurred to me this week about the coffee thing with Cooper. 
Um, in a lot of ways, Cooper is simultaneously an homage and deconstruction of noir and 80s TV detective tropes. I feel the archetypal noir relationship with coffee is not a pleasant one. You don't drink it because it's good. You drink it because you've been up all night chasing down leads for some dame and you're dead on your feet. So you stumble into a diner, grit your teeth and choke down a cup of bitter garbage. So while Cooper does appear to be genuinely enthusiastic about everything, I feel like the coffee relationship is particularly highlighted for this reason, even aside from the overarching cops and donuts joke. Then uh, Sick Notes replies, I think this is an interesting analysis of the trope. I'm with you. I think it was probably a comment on the noir relationship with coffee. Thanks for pointing it out. I think furthermore, though, David Lynch himself has a special connection with coffee. And then here are some actual quotations from David Lynch. I'd have coffee, sometimes six cups, along with a shake, and I'd have sugar in my coffee. By then, I'd be pretty jazzed up, and I'd start writing down ideas. Many, many things came out of Bob's. I like cappuccino, actually, but even a bad cup of coffee is better than no coffee at all. New York has great water for coffee. Water varies all around. We've got to drink something. Do you just drink water sometimes? It's very good for you. I love, so this is me, Chris, commenting on it. This really reminds me, this pattern of speech of David Lynch's, which is very fragmented, and he's sort of bringing up ideas as they come to him, really reminds me of Audrey's manner of speaking, where she will just make statements and then draw orthogonal connections to them seemingly as she's talking. Um, so I, I, I like that. Uh, anyway, the, uh, CL will Jack's post, or I'm sorry, sick notes post continues. I think this is a comment also on the nature of twin peaks and that it is special. Therefore the coffee and pie taste better than other places. Um, and then he goes into a spoiler, which I guess we can, transition into our spoiler section yeah so let's just thanks for listening everyone this week that was the most painful cutoff to the spoiler section uh ever <laughs> that was the that was the equivalent of opening an envelope with a bad pencil drawing of a domino yeah, chris exactly um as always if you like this podcast please and you think your friends would enjoy it let them know about it uh you want to list off the million urls sure um you can find our website at TwinPeaksRewatch.com, which includes links to our Twitter account at Peaks Rewatch, our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash TwinPeaksRewatch. Um, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a comment and a rating if you think we deserve it. Um, we're on SoundCloud at SoundCloud.com slash TwinPeaksRewatch. And thanks for listening. We will be back next week of course, to discuss the next episode of Twin Peaks. If you have not seen all of Twin Peaks and the film Firewatch with me, please do not... Firewalk with me! I keep doing it. Man, I'm terrible. If you have not seen the full run of Twin Peaks and the movie Firewalk with me, please do not listen to the following spoiler section. Also, I'm sorry that I didn't prep a rejected title for this week. Mm. I failed. I won't write in more rejected podcast titles There's a us. bunch that I just haven't compiled, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll we'll, we'll, be, we'll get back to that next week. Enjoy your musical interlude and spoilers. I will. So CL Wheeljack's email continues. Uh, he says to recap, he said, I think this is a comment also on the nature of Twin Peaks and that it is special. Therefore, the coffee and pie taste better than other places. This is explored in Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me in that the town where they find Teresa Banks is in a very nice place. The sheriff is corrupt. The diner that Desmond visits with Kiefer Sutherland's character is not a nice place. No comment is made about the coffee, but it is hinted that the coffee isn't worth drinking. The only bright spot is that it seems like the trailer park owner can brew good coffee. So it isn't just the area, it is Twin Peaks itself. It's a very minor spoiler, barely a spoiler, yeah, but, but, it's uh, interesting. but I think it's interesting, yeah. 
Um, he, he goes on. I haven't come up with any firm conclusions about this, but I think it's a comment on the whole duality concept that keeps coming up. It would be hard to get into this at this early juncture, but suffice it to say, the price they pay for having Twin Peaks be special is the nature of the darkness in the woods. It's the classic yin and yang dualism, in which every good force has a spot of concentrated bad within its boundaries. Lots of the characters have this duality built into them. Laura has her Maddie, Mike has his Bob. The list gets longer, especially for, for supernatural characters as the episodes progress. I am, okay. I guess he hasn't finished season two at this point? Okay. Sick Notes, a.k.a. Seth Benson. Thanks for writing in with those two two forum posts. Yep. Do you have any other any any observations from this episode? Just as as a going as someone going through it a second time. That's a weird preface for that. This is the smallest detail that I'm stopping on forever, but just this is the first time that an owl has shown up in the show, which is one of those oh, yeah. like, super iconic <laughs> to the point of being true. overused images of Twin yes, Peaks. Definitely. But it reminded me that Way later on in the show, owls are given very specific mm-hmm. meaning and yeah, very, the owls like, are not what they seem. Yeah, like yeah. there's all this stuff where like they have just incredibly tangible like plot importance. So them being overlooked by an owl in this scene, I like actually this is the thing that we talked about on or that I talked about a little bit on the forum for um people who are really diehard Twin Peaks fans who have consumed this show enough times that they've internalized it to the point that they can jump between events and meaning mm-hmm. entirely non-linearly. That is not me. And I don't think that's you. Like this is my second time only going me through too. this show. Mm-hmm. So like when this podcast is called Twin Peaks rewatch for me, this is actually literally me chronicling the experience of mm-hmm. rewatching the show. It's you, not you watched it once. Now you're and I'm rewatching it. it. So I, when, when that, that owl shows up, I immediately, my brain jumps to, the owls are not what they seem. They jump to vague memories of uh, Garland Briggs having those computer printouts in season two and all the stuff with people doing the sort of concentrated, focused investigation on the woods that starts to surface way late season two. But I don't remember what any of it means. Uh, so mm-hmm. I know there are people who are probably hoping that we're going to just immediately when an owl shows up, deep dive into all of that stuff and the implications of it being in the show mm-hmm. at this exact point in the show and stuff. And if you are one of those people and that is the way that you're operating when you're rewatching the show with us, please write in with your thoughts about that stuff because I would love to hear it in part because I just don't remember a lot of it. And I know when we get into season two, I'm going to jump back and talk about this stuff. But yeah, if definitely. you're sitting there going, why aren't you talking about that stuff? <laughs> please just write it in. I would, because sure. like, yeah, it's, you know, yeah. if that's something you think that we're, we're missing. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Cause like, yeah, that owl showed up and I was immediately like, Oh, that owl. Right. Wait, what is it? <laughs> right. Oh yeah. Owls, twin peaks, classic owls. Hmm. <laughs> that was my exact <laughs> response. Yeah. No, me too. I think I had the exact same, exact same thing going on. Yeah. Cool. Well, you want to call it a day? Yeah. Uh, thanks for listening guys. We'll see you next week. Yeah. Well, you can find all of them. I can restate all of our information, but it is all to be found at twin peaks, rewatch.com. Yep. Talk to you guys soon. Oh, write us in twin twin peaks at idlethumbs.net is the email address. Yes. All right. Yep. Bye.